Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon, and we're members of the Benefits Compliance team at NFP, and we use this podcast to bring to you uh, different events and issues that are coming before health benefit plans. And so today we're going to do a bit of a blitz through some compliance updates and a quick discussion of some upcoming compliance due dates. So Chase, let's start with the development on the court case relating to the coverage of preventive services. Can you give us some background on that? Yeah, this case has created some confusion, and we talked about it previously on a podcast. I think you, Suzanne, broke it down for us. Uh, We've also covered it in our biweekly newsletter, Compliance Corner, which is available at nfp.com. So if you need a quick uh, read up on that, it's available there. But it relates to coverage of preventive services, as you mentioned, and, and to give a little bit of that background, on March 30th of this year, in a case called Braidwood Management Inc. versus Becerra, who is the head of HHS, uh, the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. And that's where we see a lot of these cases originating. Uh, But that uh, court invalidated and prevented enforcement of certain ACA preventive care mandates uh, by the federal government on a nationwide basis. And if you've listened to us before, you'll remember a little bit, but the court basically struck down preventive care requirements that were recommended by a certain task force, the uh, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, uh, that have an A or B rating after determining that the process they went through, and when I say they, the the federal government went through and appointing members um, that were making these recommendations, those members were not properly appointed under the Constitution. Um, And so that that was up in the, the air there. So the departments appealed this decision, which obviously happens regularly. You just, whoever loses the case will say, Hey, we want this appeal. They run it up in the fifth circuit is really the court. That's going to hear that. Uh, the agencies, uh, requested a stay of the court's remedy pending the outcome. And a stay just means that you're going to hit pause on this for a little bit until the fifth circuit can really think it, think it through. So we were all kind of out there wondering what was happening in this case, whether it took effect immediately, whether it was nationwide, what would be the next steps? And we finally got at least a temporary answer on this one, specifically on May 15th, uh, 2023, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit um, issued an administrative stay. And again, that just means a pause on the lower court's decision. So as a result of the stay, all ACA preventive care mandates remain in effect until the Fifth Circuit really has a chance to listen to this and can rule on the substance yeah, and before you go forward, it, I think the issue was really in how that they just adopted that um, task force recommendation without further review. And so that's where mm-hmm. the lack of appointment came in. It was just because they were making recommendations and those recommendations recommendations were just adopted um, as is without further review. Right. So for employers, just be aware that the Fifth Circuit's, you know, they've granted this stay. And for, for all intensive purposes, that really means maintain the status quo here of how we were before we heard about this case, right? The preventive services should be covered without cost sharing as recommended by those agencies. Most plan designs were in compliance with this. It's really been around, you know, we've been dealing with ACA preventive care since 2010 really. And so um, really again, the takeaway 
uh, all those preventive care requirements remain in effect. And we're, we're back in this holding pattern, waiting to see what the fifth circuit will do. And then we could have another uh, appeal there that could go up to the Supreme court. And maybe that's where we end up here. But for now, kind of status quo, we'll just keep, keep our eyes peeled of, and then see what the fifth circuit does. Okay. Well, thanks for that update. I know that a lot of people were wondering what uh, the status was of that currently and its impact on health plans. And and also remember going forward when there is a ruling on this case to um, make sure you understand which preventive services were impacted and which preventive services were not impacted because it wasn't across the board. Um, so let's shift now and let's move to some compliance deadlines and some issues that we see with those. And so specifically, we're going to start off with Form 5500 filings. So can you tell me some of the issues we see with Schedule A's? Yeah, so this has come up, it's like an annual question we get and we get it multiple times. And so I just want to talk about it because it's a really interesting situation that employers sometimes get uh, put into uh, without realizing it or without even being at fault. And so first of all, let's talk about Form 5500. This is an annual filing requirement. Uh, plans with 100 or more participants uh, generally applies to, but they have to report certain information to the Department of Labor and they do that on the Form 5500. Um, they also may have to file additional information that come on what we call schedules and schedules is just basically an attachment. If anybody's filed a 1040 or your individual federal income tax return, you may have attached schedules to that. So it's the same concept here. One of those schedules is schedule a, and that schedule relates to what is called insurance information. And so, um, for this applies specifically for plans with, with fully insured coverage. Um, and so again, the, 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 whatever insurance information needs to go along with the form 5,500 that's reported on schedule a insurance information. Um, so fully insured plans obviously have an insurance carrier involved. The carrier or the insurer is actually required by law or what we call statutorily required to provide this schedule a information to the plans. Uh, the issue that we see though, and that we want to address here relates to uh, that Schedule A coming from the carrier or insurer to the employer and specifically not coming is actually what happens, right? right? And, and <laughs> what happens when you don't get this information? Um, and so how does that come up? Well, well most insurers are, are pretty willing to do this. And so uh, most carriers will do it. But what we see is some type of mistake or miscommunication or other issues that come up uh, when uh, employers in their plan administrator role don't receive the information they need to. Uh, and, and this comes up as obviously as the form 5500 deadline is approaching. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. So what, what does happen if the carrier doesn't provide the, the schedule a information? Yeah. So first we need to highlight that, uh, again, when we're, we're going to say plan administrator, usually that's the employer in the fully insured context, which is why we're talking about it. Um, they still remain responsible for filing Schedule A, even if they don't have the information to do it, to complete the, the form fully, which feels weird to employers. Because like, well, how, what do I put in this line? What do I put here? And, and the, the idea is you need to file it, even if you don't have any information or all information. Um, and so we are going to talk about in just a minute, employers can report the insurance company's failure to provide the necessary information on Part 4 of Schedule A, some of this will feel a little bit technical because we're going to talk about lines and parts, but um, that should really be the last resort and, and really only if all reasonable efforts have been made to obtain the information. So as a last re resort, there is a way to just tell the DOL on Schedule A, 
hey, the insurance company actually failed here. We can't do much more. And I guess the thing to remember is you need to file and at least complete that checkbox. But before we get there, um, it's, it's important for the employer to take steps to ensure that the information wasn't simply uh, misidentified or misplaced or misfiled. And what happens a lot here is insurers may and often do deliver their Schedule A information electronically. And so it's not uncommon to find Schedule A information delivered to the wrong person or the wrong department. Maybe there was a, mis uh, a, a misspelling in the email address, whatever it is. Um, it could just be with the wrong person in, in the company. Um, similarly, these things often end up in a junk or a spam email folder, right? And so just, just uh, mis misplaced within the email system itself. Sometimes the person who should have received it just got lost in their email. Maybe they just got buried at the bottom of the email or they, they didn't recognize it as something that was important to respond to. So um, there's no standard format for Schedule A information and carriers approaches very widely. And so try and find the information in your email before going any further. That's usually the best solve that we see. If that doesn't work, the, then the employer should reach out to the carrier um, and, and see if there's been an oversight. This is another one that usually between those two, a lost email, misplaced email, or just reaching out to the carrier and say, hey, I, I think we we're supposed to have this. The carrier will fix the problem. Maybe it did go to the wrong person, but those usually solve like 85, 90% of these problems. There are situations where employers discover that um, you know insurance companies really didn't send the information. Maybe they forgot on their end. And, um, and so uh, the plan administrator or the employer will We'll need to know why, and then they can usually work it out to get it. Well, and, and one may ask, you know, why does the DOL make the employer or the plan responsible if this information is in the hands of the carrier? And it's usually because, you know, the DOL governs employers and plans, but not carriers. And so it's it's really has to do with regulatory authority and uh, where that begins and where it ends. And so um, that's often why we see uh, mandates on the employers or the plans, even if they don't necessarily have the information at, at hand. Um what are some of the reasons that the carriers give when they don't provide the Schedule A information? Yeah, and there could be legitimate reasons here too. So we don't always just want to throw the carrier under the bus, right? Like, so let's talk about those. From from our experience, we've seen a couple of common reasons that the carriers or insurers have not that they have for not sending out Schedule A information. So the first is that the insurance policy year hasn't ended. And so plans sometimes include insurance policies with policy years that differ from the plan year. We don't always recommend that, right? Cause it gets confusing when we're talking about the plan year. Uh, but as an example, a plan that runs from July 1st to June 30th may have an insured benefit with a calendar year policy year. So the, the carrier might not have any schedule A information to provide because they're thinking policy year, which hasn't concluded yet. Um, so, Again, the, the employer in, in that situation will want to check for Schedule A information for the previous policy year, if any, since Form 5500 reporting should include Schedule A's for any insured benefits with policy years ending within the applicable plan year. That one's a little bit confusing because it's a, kind of a misalignment of the renewal, which is what the carrier might be thinking, versus the ERISA plan year, which is what the employer should be thinking and which drives the Form 5500 due date, right? The reason we're talking about this now, I guess, really quickly too, is that uh, calendar year plans are, are the more more common plan year, and um, Form 5500s for a calendar year are due at the end of July, and so May and June become prep months for Form 5500. 
So that's one reason. Uh, another is that the insurer might have thought the plan was a small plan. And again, if it's small, uh, meaning it covers fewer than 100 participants, um, it, it, the Form 5500 requirement might not apply. But what we see is that employers sometimes bundle their plans, meaning the carrier might not be aware that there are actually, once you bundle the plans of the employer, you may get over 100. And therefore, Form 5500 kicks in, meaning Schedule A kicks in. So in other words, just the carrier thought this is a small plan when the reality is, is it's actually a uh, big plan that needs to file. So again, reaching out to the carrier, explaining that, say, hey, we know that this particular plan is under 100, but once we bundle it, it's over 100. We still need your Schedule A. Most carriers will pass along that information. Um, another reason is that the plan maybe hasn't needed a Schedule A in the past. And so again, maybe, uh, maybe it's grown um, the, the, the participant count has gone over a hundred and in past years, they haven't needed that. Um, so, so that's just another, uh, reason to reach out to the carrier. If you get to that point and the plan administrator, uh, is the employer determines that no schedule A information is necessary. Um, you know, that's, that's a possibility too. Maybe, maybe there really isn't a schedule A necessary. Um, but if the plan, if they get there and they determine it is, um, because the insurer's plan is just one component, um, then the insurer should provide that information as soon as they can. And usually carriers do. So again, as a last resort, once you get to the end of this and, and you, a carrier isn't willing to do that. And we have seen those situations, uh, the plan administrator basically just checks a box saying yes on, uh, part four line 11. And that, line specifically asked, did the insurance company fail to provide any information necessary to complete schedule a, and then there's a, a line 12 where you can explain why and the steps you took. You can also ask the local department of labor office to intervene. That's another step that, that, uh, could happen. I've never actually seen that happen. Uh, but if the employer checks that box, fills out line 11 and explains on line 12, that will be enough to get the employer past any, any risk of penalty or failure with the Form 5500. Right. All right. Well, thanks for um, doing going through that recap, because as you as you mentioned, the Form 5500 filing season is upon us for those plans that are a one one plan year. And that means that coming up in uh, June and July, well, May. Uh, and June are often the months where we start to see these issues arise because they're due at the end of July. And so uh, this is very timely discussion. But let's move on now to another issue. And it also relates to an upcoming due date. And that relates to HSAs. Yes. So uh, we've just passed one of the bigger dates for HSAs. I want to recap that really quickly because HSAs kind of live throughout the year. But April 15th is the big due date for HSAs. That's the the due date for HSA contributions and curative distributions for 2022 HSA contribution amounts. So every year, and we'll just use 22 and 2023 as an example, but you can contribute in 2023 and allocate that to your 2022 contribution limit, but only if that 2023 contribution occurs prior to the due date uh, of your individual federal income tax return, your 1040. And so April 15th is that general due date. Of course, it shifts if it's on a weekend or a holiday. Uh, but the same thing, you can fix your over contributions for 22 and avoid any excise tax penalties on those over contributions to HSAs if you distribute amounts out of your HSA. But again, only if you do that distribution out by the income tax return due date. 
So we're past April here now, but always a good reminder of why April matters when it comes to HSAs. The month of May also matters when it comes to HSAs. The IRS generally announces the upcoming calendar year HSA contribution amounts and the related qualifying high deductible health plan numbers in May. And these help employers and brokers plan for the upcoming plan year. And as we know, a lot of that planning happens months in advance of the beginning of the plan year. Um, so May is the traditional time when we get these numbers. I just wanted to recap them quickly because people are hearing about them in the news. Um, we've updated them in our resources, which we'll talk about in just a sec. But um, this comes through an IRS, what is called a revenue procedure or a rev proc, if you want to be fancy in the IRS world, rev proc 2023-23. And so with that, with a 2024 annual HSA contribution limit is going to go up to 4,150 for individuals with self-only coverage. Remember, they're different based on self-only versus family. Uh, but that 4,150 is up $300 from 2023. So we always see a little bit of an increase. And then up to 8,300 for individuals with anything other than self. And so that, that's what we call family coverage, but it would include uh, self plus one, self plus children, self plus spouse or domestic partner, um, but that's kind of how they divide up the contribution limits. That 8,300, 8, that's an increase of 550 from 2023. You have to be in a qualified high deductible plan to contribute to your HSAs, right? And this same rev proc from the IRS puts out the numbers there. Um, I won't go through those because they, they probably don't mean as much to those that are listening, but just know that those numbers are out. Um, most plans, most carriers, most TPAs, if you're self-funded, that uh, are working in the high deductible space will have these built in and ready to go for the upcoming plan years. Uh, but we just wanted to mention that. So this happens usually around in May and it's just good to, to throw it out there and talk about it a little bit. Well, and um, it, so for those that are listening, is there a good resource that they can go to? Because obviously this is not information that you're going to retain very easily when you hear it. Um, so what what can we point them to? Yeah, so good point. And um, we always like to point listeners back to our Compliance Corner newsletter. That's a biweekly newsletter that comes out every second Tuesday and includes updates at the federal and state level. Um, and, and so you can, we'll, we'll have an article in that today. That's coming out today. Uh, we also have a couple of publications that we uh, can be available through your NFP advisor. Uh, one is called HSA is a Guide for Employers, and that includes an appendix, uh, appendix that has the updated numbers. And then we have an annual limits publication that kind of tracks any, um, you know, all the, all the numbers that might change throughout the year that relate to benefit plans. Uh, we've updated that and it's now available as well. So we like to track this stuff. We like to be in the weeds and we like to provide resources that are hopefully useful as employers navigate all of this, but those are a couple that they can go to uh, talk to your NFP advisor. If you, you need copies of those. All right, Chase. Well, thank you. We walked through the preventive, the status of the preventive case and through some good reminders on schedule A's and HSA. So um, as we like to say on this podcast, that's a wrap. That's thank a wrap. Thank you for joining. <laughs>